This is a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. This segment is really, and I love what you said, Blair, it's going back to basics. It's looking at the difference between what it means to declare personal bankruptcy or filing a consumer proposal. They're both really good debt management options that are available to folks, uh, best handled, only handled by a licensed insolvency trustee. But there's some key differences between the two processes. And uh, fortunately, we've got Blair from Sands & Associates to explain more to help us understand and compare the two. So can we start with what is a consumer proposal, Blair, and and how does it work, or maybe just defining it to start with, just in case somebody hasn't heard of it before? Yeah, of course, Elaine. So I'm thrilled to do this segment because I know we talk, we touch on a lot of segments um, on, on our show here, a lot of different topics, but sometimes it's helpful just to make sure we've set the ground rules um, you know, correctly here and people know exactly what these remedies are that we allude to all the time. So really, again, from the basic level here, what a consumer proposal is, uh, it's often a surprise to people that this exists because they come to see a licensed insolvency trustee and they think, you know, a personal bankruptcy is their only option. They're a little bit despondent about that. But a consumer proposal is a powerful debt consolidation tool. It's grown in popularity hugely over the last number of years. So in my time of practice, about the last 13 years, proposals went from, you know, less than 20-30% of filings to over 70% of filings quite often most months in British Columbia. Um, and the reason for it is it's a better alternative to bankruptcy for a lot of folks. It's not for everybody, but for a lot of folks. And what it is, it's a deal that you work out with your creditors that consolidates your debts into one manageable payment. But what's different about traditional consolidation loans where you borrow the money and you still have to pay back interest and all the principal as well. With a consumer proposal, you can drastically reduce the overall amount of debt that you have to pay and you pay no interest or any added fees. So in many cases, your debt can be reduced up to 70 or 80% and you pay no interest or no added fees on top of that. So suddenly a debt problem that seemed insurmountable, you thought bankruptcy was your only option, you'd never pay it off. Uh, a lot of folks are just so happy to learn that this option exists and that's why it's grown in popularity so much. And I like the idea, too, that it's really tailored to each person individually. There's no sort of uh, framework that you just pop somebody into. Exactly. So, you know, if someone re reaches out to me, and I don't get these calls often, but they've got, you know, the house with no mortgage with a million dollars of equity. Well, for me to try to help them reduce their debt, it's difficult. I can save them the interest, uh, but they've got the means to pay back all of that debt over time. But if somebody is coming to me and, you know, they're earning just enough income to get by, they don't have a whole lot of assets, well, we can offer a proposal to repay 20 or 30% of that debt. And that proposal will get accepted just about every time that we file it, um, because the alternative is, they might file a bankruptcy and pay back, you know, essentially nothing on the debt. The creditors wouldn't get any recovery. So every situation varies, but the guiding light is what is your ability to repay, and the proposal has to be tailored to that ability. Now, who can file a consumer proposal or personal bankruptcy in this province, in this country? 
Mm-hmm. It's a really simple answer. It's not a lawyer. It's not any consultant, someone that you'd hire a fee for service. It's only a licensed insolvency trustee. So it's enshrined in the law. You can't file your own proposal. You know, you can make your best effort to try and get your creditors to accept 20 cents in the dollar, but probably not going to work. But if you sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, they've got the power to use Canadian law to help the settlement get done. And it's and I think this is one of the main reasons why you have to have somebody who's who's got that um, a declaration of being a, a, a licensed insolvency trustee is because there's so many debts that can be forgiven under a consumer proposal or a bankruptcy. So let's talk about those. Mm-hmm. That's so important, Elaine, because sometimes we have people come in that got that has preconceived notions that we can only solve part of the problem. Well, the answer is under a consumer proposal, virtually all of your debts can be forgiven uh, or reduced significantly. So in addition to the typical consumer debts like credit cards or lines of credit, you can also deal with government debts like income taxes, uh, even penalties and interest on top of those. Um, Student loans can be dealt with. Uh, Most ICBC debts, just a few exceptions, you know, if there was some criminal component to it, but the vast majority of ICBC debts can be dealt with. Um, just about any debt that was honestly incurred uh, can be dealt with um, and reduced in a consumer proposal. And what's really great in a consumer proposal is you don't need everybody to agree. So what I was alluding to before, you know, you could try to make informal settlements with all of your creditors, but you might not get too far. Well, what if one of your creditors don't agree and they decide to take you to court and you're just making informal deals? You've got some trouble there. If you're doing a consumer proposal, All the trustee needs is 50% by dollar value of your debts to vote to accept the proposal. And as long as we get that, even if the other 49% of the debt is Canada Revenue Agency or a student loan or a creditor who doesn't want to compromise on their debt, they're bound by the terms of the consumer proposal. The deal is essentially forced on the rest of the creditors if a majority of your debt says yes to it, uh, which again, in our experience, is about 95 to 99% of the time we get that majority to vote yes. The other cool thing about uh, dealing with somebody at Sands and Associates is that it's just not the filing of the papers. There's uh, uh, some very significant counseling services and sessions that are included in that process. Yeah, Elena, it, it makes my day and it happens quite often. So even just yesterday, I, I heard from somebody um, who five years ago, they finished their bankruptcy and this time not a proposal and they were getting a mortgage. They were able to buy real estate. Um, they had saved the down payment and they said, without me taking that step, and without me getting the credit counseling from Sands and Associates to understand how to rebuild my credit and how to have a good savings plan, um, they never would have gotten there. They would have been stuck just making minimum payments, you know, for decades to come. Um, so we really want to make sure when we're dealing with debt it's a whole situation but we're also helping the person giving them the right tools so that they can avoid getting in the situation in the future if at all possible and i just want to add if, if you're sort of chomping at the bit and you know that this is the solution for you and you want to start to take action you want to get a hold of sands and associates i'm going to give you their website it's sands-trustee.com loads of good information on there and plus you can access an office near you and this is the phone number it's a 1-800 number 1-800-661 3030. So uh, is there a difference in terms of how long um, each of these either bankruptcy or consumer proposal take to complete? 
Yeah, there, there is. So when you file a personal bankruptcy, it's different than a proposal in that there's no permission that you need from your creditors. So when you're filing a proposal, I mentioned we need to get them to vote to accept it. With a personal bankruptcy, you don't need the permission of anybody that you owe money to. You don't have to go and apply to the court and justify why you have to, why you should get protection in bankruptcy. Um, you just sit down with a trustee and file the documents. And the way a proposal is structured is a proposal can be over a maximum of 60 months. So five years in total with typically the same monthly payment. And if you can pay it off sooner, you're done that much sooner. Um, The way a bankruptcy works is the time that you're in bankruptcy, it doesn't matter the amount of your debt. What matters is your income. And if you've ever previously filed a bankruptcy before, So if someone is considered low income and they've never filed a bankruptcy before, bankruptcy can be over in as little as nine months. And most people are just shocked to hear that because they think, oh, bankruptcy takes seven years. Well, it's not if you do everything right. It doesn't take you seven years. Something went horribly wrong if you're in bankruptcy for seven years. Um, Even if you're not low income, uh, bankruptcy runs for a year longer than that. It runs for 21 months uh, instead of the nine-month period. And again, what you have to pay into a bankruptcy, it's driven by your income and not by the amount of the debt. So if someone was, you know, had an ICBC accident, they weren't covered, and there was a million dollars worth of damages, them offering a consumer proposal to pay back even 20% of that debt, $200,000, that's not going to be easy for just about anybody I've ever met with. Bankruptcy might be their option, but their bankruptcy would run the same if they owed a million dollars or $10,000 or $100,000. It's all based on their income, their household, again, if there's previously been a bankruptcy filing. So usually bankruptcy is a little bit quicker um, to get over and done with. Uh, usually a proposal takes you a little bit longer, um, but there, again, there's intricacies in each situation. Okay. And what about um, the timelines for these things? I know that people care about their credit ratings for a mm-hmm. bunch of different reasons. How, how's that different? Yeah, I think there's no clients that I sit down with that don't ask really good questions about their credit rating. and I'm happy to answer them. And usually, you know, the philosophy to take is, well, preserving perfect credit at every moment of your life is usually not the right financial decision for you. So you've got to accept that if you're going to get out of debt, you're going to take a short term hit to your credit. And anytime you don't pay your debts back in full, your credit rating does take a hit. So if you file a bankruptcy, I just mentioned bankruptcy can be over in as little as nine months. And what happens then is for six years after that uh, that nine-month period, if someone pulls a credit report on you, they'll see that a bankruptcy was filed. Now, it doesn't mean they're not going to advance you credit because, if anything, coming out of a bankruptcy, you might be a better credit risk than you were right before because you don't have any debt. You just come through a formal legal proceeding, which nobody takes lightly, um, and typically you're going to take very seriously the first person that advances your credit and maybe be a lifelong customer of theirs. So usually it's more of a calendar of about two to three years after a bankruptcy is when people can start to get you know, credit cards with no deposits, even qualify for mortgages. Uh, With a consumer proposal, it's slightly quicker than that. So a consumer proposal, it's six years from the day that you file it, um, so slightly quicker than a a bankruptcy would be, or three years from when you pay it off. So if you worked really hard and finished a proposal in a single year or a year and a half, well, three years after that, it's going to drop off your credit bureau, and it's also a little bit less severe than a bankruptcy is. So your credit uh, rating can go from R1 to R9 on each debt. A bankruptcy is R9, R1 is perfect. A consumer proposal is R7, which means you're in a negotiated repayment arrangement. So neither are permanently fatal by any means. You'll recover from both, uh, but they are a little bit different in their duration and in the severity of the impact. In the last couple of minutes in this segment, can we talk about the cost difference or comparing the costs uh, between declaring a bankruptcy or making a proposal? My guess is there's some differences there. 
Yeah, absolutely. So a consumer proposal, again, it's driven by how much debt are you repaying and how much can you afford to repay? So for example, if you had $40,000 of debt and you were going to offer your creditors back about 12600 and these are numbers that I see just about every day, that's about 30% of the debt, you'd pay that at three fifty per month um, over a term of 36 months. Um, you'd pay the first three fifty when you sign the documents and then you'd pay three fifty per month for the next 35 months. You wouldn't pay any extra fees at all. There are fees in the process, but they're borne by your creditors, essentially. If we've worked out, you can afford to repay 30%. Your creditors will get you know, some portion of that, probably about 22 23% of that, uh, doing, doing round numbers here. And the trustee gets some fees that are set by tariff, but there's never any separate bill that you're going to receive. Um, in a bankruptcy, um, it's all set by government tariff as well, um, but your income is what determines your payment. And if you're low income, which is under about $2,200 for a single person in BC right now, you pay just $200 a month for nine months. And that includes everything, all the trustee services, getting you out of debt and the counseling. So you, you've got to make some payments, but that's always in lieu of you paying anything back on the debt in a bankruptcy. And I want to mention again, um, the website is such a good tool for anybody who's thinking about wanting to take some action here. It's it's really the website. Your website is so good. It's got so many good questions and really good answers, and it's easy to understand. Uh, and that's sans-trustee.com. Or if you want to zip ahead and, and make a phone call, uh, there's a 1-800 number I'm going to give you. It's one 800 661 3030. That's where you can set up an appointment for that free consultation and uh, and start taping, taking those first steps. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. So steps, the steps that one follows to file a consumer proposal. And again, if you haven't heard of a consumer proposal before or you don't know what it is, this is a great segment for you. Um, because it is, it's all about being able to consolidate your debt, not using a loan, not borrowing money or paying interest charges. And Blair's going to explain how the consumer proposal works, how it, how you deal with the debt and how you go about filing one in this province. So awesome, Blair. I'm so glad we're doing this segment. Uh, what's the first thing that you want to, you want to talk about when it comes to a consumer proposal? Uh, you know, I think in terms of defining a consumer proposal, let, let's give a couple examples because I think that's going to help paint the picture of exactly what we're talking about. You know, essentially a consumer proposal is a means of consolidating your debt and paying back what you can afford. So, you know, a scenario that I see quite often, um, someone owing around $20,000 of debt might offer a consumer proposal. And you can imagine carrying $20,000 of debt at a high interest rate. That can be, you know, very concerning almost for any income level. Uh, they might offer to pay back 30% of the total debt. Uh, and they might make monthly payments uh, in the range of $165 a month for 36 months. They pay back 30% of the debt and the balance. 70% would be legally written off. They would never have to repay that balance. Um, you know, another example, uh, one that I filed just recently here, a 35-year-old skills tradesman uh, who came in to see me had some health issues, and he had accumulated about $55,000 of consumer debts, and he just wasn't sleeping, um, you know, just very worried, really struggling to make ends meet, and his creditors were calling him daily because he was starting to get behind on his payments. 
Uh, his minimum payments alone, he was earning $3,200. And if he was going to make all his minimum payments, it would have been half of his income. Uh, we filed a consumer proposal. It stopped all of the calls. It stopped all of the interest charges. And it cut his debt from $55,000 down to $23,400. So less than half. Um, and he made monthly payments of $650 a month over 36 months. So he went from $1,600 a month of minimum payments that would have had him on, you know, pick a number, but probably the 40 or 50 year plan to get out of debt with minimum payments to a three year plan at $650 per month. No one could bother him, um, no further interest, no additional fees. It was absolutely life changing. And he got some good financial counseling as well. So, you know, in the future, if he does have health issues, uh, we're, ta- we're teaching him, you know, here's how you build up the emergency fund. You know, here's how you try to avoid the high interest debt in the future. So he's going to be that much better off after the proceeding. So, what's the first step in getting a consumer? proposal started for someone? You know, I often say the first step is, is probably the most difficult step um, in, in the whole process because it's a bit of a leap of faith. You have to reach out and ask for help. And when you reach out to Sands and Associates, you're going to be treated with the utmost utmost of dignity, empathy, and respect, but not everybody knows that. So people can be very, you know, reticent or reluctant. They'll often suffer for up to two years knowing they're in debt, knowing that they need a way out, um, but they're just scared to make that first call and reach out. So the first step after you've reached out um, is to, to meet with us for a free confidential debt consultation. So we're doing a ton of consultations these days uh, over video, over the phone, remotely, signing documents remotely, so you can get help wherever and whatever method that that works for you. And during that debt consultation, you're going to sit down with a friendly person who's going to take the time to understand your situation, because behind every debt, um, there's a story, there's a family, um, there's a dynamic that's that's happened that's gotten the person to that point. Um, And then also want to understand your needs and your goals, because they're often quite different, you know, Someone who's 80 years old and you know that doesn't need to be buying a house in a few years might need a different solution uh, for someone that's 35 years old and would love to be able to start to save for a down payment. Um, so we want to understand you know the age and stage and what your goals are. Uh, when you sit down with a, with a trustee, it's not the case that hey we've got a certain set of solutions and you must fit into those. We're going to talk to you about all of your possible options. You know, is it possible for you to get out of this with just a little bit better budgeting? Um, is it possible that you can file that consumer? proposal to reduce the debt, um, or is even a a bankruptcy a better option for you? We're going to talk about all of those things. And what I like about uh, working, doing the work that I do is I really take the approach that I want a no surprises experience. So I want to tell people up front, um, here's the process. We're going to meet a number of times, what we're going to talk about today. And, you know, here's the terms that we think about. We'll work with a consumer proposal. Um, In the first meeting, we're going to tell you whether you're eligible to file a consumer proposal. And the eligibility is pretty broad. You have to owe some money that you're not able to repay. Uh, The amount of your debt has to be in the range of more than $1,000, but less than $250,000. And that doesn't include your mortgage. So if you've got a mortgage, that's kind of kept separate from this. Um, And the repayment term that you're going to look at can be no longer than 60 months. So it's not going to be a never-never plan. You never get out of debt and you pay forever. It's going to be a solution that at the maximum is going to be five years and often is done sooner than that. So all of that is in step one, which is your first meeting. Okay. And what about, what if you're over $250,000? What happens then? 
Yeah, it's a good question. So there's the option. You could file a joint proposal. So if you and your spouse have some debts that are in common and you're both filing a proposal, that limit gets doubled to two hundred. Sorry, to $500,000 and $250,000. Okay. And even if you're a single person over that amount, there is a certain type of a proposal, not called a consumer proposal, called a Division One proposal, which is often very much the same type of a structure, a couple little intricacies different. Um, but the, the, the takeaway is that you do have options still, even if your debt's more than 250000 But sometimes at that point, it becomes difficult for a person to pay back a third of 250000 That's a lot of money for someone to pay back over five years. But I have seen situations where it's possible for sure. Okay. So, and in any event, you're going to give that person who comes in and sits down with you or is on the computer with you all this good information so you can figure out the best course of action to take. What about your, your second meeting? What happens there? Mm-hmm. Yeah, and I should say, Elaine, all of this is at no cost, no obligation, no expectation that you'll move forward and you'll never get an invoice from us if you choose not to move forward. Uh, the second meeting uh, is typically after the first meeting, you've said, you know, I've thought about it, I want to move forward with a proposal, and we give you an application form. And I guess the old term is to say, I give you an application form. Now I, I send you to our web-based uh, application portal where you just fill in all of your information. You take some pictures of your most recent statements. You take a picture of your pay stub, different things like that. Uh, and then we meet to review all of that to make sure we got the facts correctly. So we understand this is your income. We understand this is your debt. Um, here's the situation. And then we say, this is the proposal we think we can structure for you. Would you like to proceed? And assuming the proposal works, it meets your objectives and fits in your budget. Then we set up a third meeting. And it's at the third meeting is when you sign the official documents. We review everything with you in detail. And the proceeding can start at that point. Um, you've still made no payments at that time, and all of these meetings can happen. You know, it can happen in the space of a single week if it's very urgent and someone's having their wages seized. Or often, you know, it's a first meeting, the person takes a week or two to think about it, get their information together, and then by about two or three weeks in, we're having that third meeting and getting the proposal going. And the reason that people want to usually move kind of fast is you get protection as soon as you've signed the consumer proposal. Nobody can call you, harass you, take you to court, seize any of your wages. You're under this umbrella of a trustee's protection, and that can just be so important for people's mental and even physical health. So, and this is the next the next thing that happens, which I think is very interesting. So it's aft, at, the, at the point that the consumer proposal is officially filed and started. What happens at that point? Well, all of the debts are frozen then, and a 45-day period commences, and that's the voting period. So the creditor sets, or the trustee sends the proposal out to all of your creditors, and then 45 days later looks at the votes that come back. And as long as 50% by dollar value of your creditors voted to accept the proposal, it becomes legally binding, and that term uh, on the proposal is, is now in force. So all you need to do is make those monthly payments, attend the two counseling sessions, and you've got a debt solution. Very cool. And um, in closing, too, I like the idea that while you're waiting for those 45 days to expire, uh, you don't normally have to do anything because mm-hmm. you're, you're already being looked after. You're, you're fully protected. There, You don't need to make any payments, uh, any calls. You get your redirect into the trustee. You get the breathing room, and it's in the trustee's hands to get the proposal accepted. The website is sands-trustee.com if you want to get that started. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates. 
They're experts in helping you get out of debt. And that's what this segment is all about. Debt help professionals in this country. What you should know about those help, those service providers. And we've learned if you're, if you've been, if you've heard the show at all, or if this is your first time, this is such good information because not all debt help professionals are created equally. And, uh, and Blair's going to start by going through some of the most common professionals or types of representatives consumers consider when they're looking, when you're looking for help from someone who can help you with debt management. And, uh, there's lots of good things to, li- to learn in this segment, I think, Blair. I, w- I remember when we first covered this topic, it was surprising and shocking to me, uh, <clears throat> where some of these, uh, people who, where they come from or how they're funded or et cetera. So let's get to it. Yeah, I'm thrilled to, to talk about this today, Elaine. And, and, you know, I don't think anybody would think that financial literacy in Canada is, is you know, anything that we, we should be proud of at this point. You know, we just don't teach enough about you know, how people should save and invest for the future. And we teach nothing about what to do when you have a debt problem. Um, you know, I went to business school, even worked at an accounting firm, and I had no idea when a family member of mine started to get into financial trouble what I could do to help that person. So even sometimes when you're reaching out, um, you know, to financially literate, financial savvy people in your life, uh, they just might not know where to steer you. So I think today's segment will help you get a little bit of the lay of the land of who's out there, what they could potentially do to help, and where you should start to reach out to. Not to say one professional is the best for every situation, they're not, but it's important to know exactly who is out there. So generally speaking, if you're looking for some debt management support, uh, the type of people people reach that you would reach out to, uh, first off, would be a lender. So typically a bank, maybe for a consolidation loan uh, or a subprime lender. Sometimes these are payday loans uh, or installment loans, you know, sometimes very high interest, high cost, which we'll talk about. Um, other than that, you might see, see or hear something about a debt settlement agent or a debt advisor or a debt consultant. Um, these are typically unregulated individuals that, you know, often make a lot of claims that might make them sound a whole lot like a licensed insolvency trustee, but they don't have any of the legal authority to actually help you execute on whatever remedies they're talking about. Um, so you'd still have to eventually see a trustee and you might pay fees in between. Um, oftentimes there's credit counselors and these can be for-profit or not-for-profit. There's not a huge difference, on, honestly, between the two. Um, and oftentimes they're heavily funded by the people that you owe money to. So we'll talk a little bit about how that can create a bit of a conflict of interest. Uh, and then finally, or, or fourth in line here, um, is licensed insolvency trustees, which if you haven't heard, um, they used to be referred to as bankruptcy trustees or trustees in bankruptcy. But about three or four years ago, the government changed the, the title to make it a little bit more uh, uh, maybe innocuous and a little bit uh, more broad to say it's not just bankruptcy, a licensed insolvency trustee can help you with. It's, it's a much broader suite of services than that. Now, those are the official ones, but but you also must come across people who turn to family or friends for help. Yeah, and that's that's often uh, one of the worst things that, that you can do. Um, so for an emotional point of view, absolutely open up to your friends, your family member, you know, everybody look for a solution. But if you start, if you begin to borrow from friends or family, it often adds an emotionally wrought dimension to an already difficult situation. Because if you have to be in a position where you're not going to be able to repay all of your debts, by law, you're not allowed to pick and choose and say, well, you know, I just want to pay back my family, but Visa and MasterCard, I'm not going to be able to pay them back. So if you start to introduce some family funds, it can be tough. Uh, and this can sometimes take the, the uh, role of being a co-signer. 
So you might be applying to a bank for a consolidation loan. They say, well, we can approve you, but only if mom, dad, brother, sister, or whoever signs in the dotted line to also be responsible. Well, then you've just given the bank another pocket to dig into. It's not a 50-50 liability. It's 100% of the debt they might be responsible for if you're in a position that you can't pay it back. So usually that's a bad idea is to start to, to use family resources uh, to deal with, with someone's debt. Yeah. Can you can you talk about the different solutions that are available for each type of debt help provider and then what kind of debts they generally can help with? Yeah, for sure. So we'll go in the same order. So talking about yeah. lenders. So this is, you know, essentially trying to borrow your way out of the situation. So solving a debt problem with more debt, which can sound sometimes a little bit absurd, but oftentimes the benefit is you're going to consolidate or put together a whole bunch of different debts, maybe with different payment dates and different terms and different interest rates. And hopefully you're going to be able to reborrow at a lower interest rate. So you'll have a single monthly payment. Hopefully it's lower than what you were paying before because the interest charges are also lower. So this is usually the first place people start is they say, well, I'm paying 19% interest here, 29% interest there. Could I go and consolidate my debts, you know, for 10 or 12% interest? And oftentimes what comes back from the bank is, well, we'd love to do that, but you don't have any assets that we could take as security to guarantee that they will get paid because the bank is going to go and pay back everybody else 100 cents on the dollar. What if you're not able to pay the bank back? You know, they didn't get to be record profitable by losing money. So they're going to want to make sure there's some assets that are there or they're going to request that you get a co-signer, which, again, can remove all of your flexibility in the future if you eventually can't repay the debts in full. You know now that co-signer is going to be on the hook. Okay. So the second one was what? Uh, debt settlement agents you talked about. Yeah. So with a debt settlement agent, um, you know, they're generally going to try to help you with your consumer debt. So nothing to do with a government debt, a student law or an ICBC debt. And what they'll do uh, is typically try to negotiate individually with each of your creditors to achieve a settlement for less than what you owe. So if you started to, to look up online, you might see things like, oh, yeah, we settle debts for, you know, 20 cents in the dollar. If it's not a trustee, you have to be a bit careful because the way debt settlement works is they'll have a promise that, you know, we can sell your debt for 20 cents in the dollar, but they'll require that you start to save that 20% of the debt so you can give a lump sum payment um, to your creditors. So oftentimes what that means is they'll tell you to stop paying everybody, uh, to start paying them their fee and start putting some money into a set-aside fund or you know, a, a little savings account that's, a, that's different than your normal. And then once you've spent some time being delinquent on your debts, they'll phone up all of your creditors and say, hey, you haven't heard from John in six months. He's going to offer you a 20% repayment do you want to take it or not? Some creditors will take it, some won't. The government will never agree to work with these guys. Um, but oftentimes what I hear from clients is they pay a lot of fees and they're either not able to save the amount of money because life can intervene and it's tough to save a lump sum of money um, or their creditors just keep harassing them. They'll never take the deal and they end up worse off. Their credit rating is worse than it was before and they got no solution and just paid a bunch of fees. Okay. So that doesn't, yeah, that doesn't sound like a good option. What about a credit counselor? We see lots of advertisements and hear lots of advertisements for credit counseling. Mm -hmm. Yeah, with a credit counselor, so it's the same type of debts that can be handled as with the debt settlement agent. So it's your typical consumer debt, so it's nothing to do with government, student loans, or ICBC. Um, and a credit counselor, they're generally funded near 100% by the creditors. So this is, you know, one of my bones of contention is I think there should be a whole lot more transparency when you sit down, even with a not-for-profit credit counselor, for them to say, you know, my job is essentially to be a collection agent for the bank. I'm going to treat you nice, but I want 100% of the debt back from the bank. And 
And that's what a credit counselor can offer you is 100% repayment of your debt um, over a term of up to five years. And they can often negotiate an interest freeze on those amounts. So compared to your status quo, that can be a really good option. You know, get the interest down to zero and pay it off over five years. But the challenge that I run into with clients is it can be difficult to afford paying off 100% of their debt over a five-year period. And a lot of folks aren't aware that they're actually dealing directly with the, with the creditors, with a collection agent, and they're not going to make you aware of some other options that might be a better deal for you, like a consumer proposal, which hurts your credit the same, but you pay back what you can afford, sometimes 20 to 40% of the amount as opposed to 100% of the amount. You can imagine that's a very different life, a very different means of affording the payback of your debt. Yeah. Now, the last one is licensed insolvency trustee. And before we go there, I just want to say, if you want to jot down this website so that you, this will make more sense when you go back to the website to check it out, it's for sans-trustee.com. That's the website. And it's filled with great questions and really good answers on all kinds of areas of the things that we're talking about. And the phone number, just so that you've got this, jot it down as well, one 800 661 3030. So let's talk about a licensed insolvency trustee. Yeah, so different than than the last two advisors that we talked about, a debt settlement agent or a credit counselor, a licensed insolvency trustee can deal with just about every debt that's out there. So not just your consumer debts, they can deal with your income tax, the penalties, the interest, they can deal with student loans, can deal with just about every ICBC debt as well. So when you're dealing with a licensed insolvency trustee, um, you're getting what's called a fresh start. You get the ability to start over unburdened by debt, and there's none of your debts typically they're going to fall outside of the program. I say typically because things like child support or alimony, you know, those are debts that you can't compromise, nor would most people seek to do so. But other than that, your standard debts, a licensed insolvency trustee can deal with all of them. Um, in Canada, a licensed insolvency trustee is the only professional that's able to use Canadian law to help you make a consumer proposal, which I alluded to previously, which is you know one of the best solutions that maybe you've never heard of unless you listen to us quite a bit, uh, but it's the best solution to get you out of debt without having to file a bankruptcy. So a proposal is structured to look at what would happen if you filed for bankruptcy. And most of the time, people would make some minimum payments. Almost nothing would get repaid on their debts. And it's based on a win-win principle where the win to the person is they avoid filing a bankruptcy. And the win to their creditors, the people they owe money to, is that they actually get some of their debt back. You know, usually a range of 20 to 40 percent over a term of up to five years. You know, terms of about three to four years are more typical. So when you're dealing with a trustee, they've got to sit down with you, work out your budget and figure out what you can actually afford to repay on your debts, which other advisors don't have to do. So, you know, if it's a credit counselor that's being paid by the lender, are they going to take the most interest in making sure you avoid hardship? Well, I hope so, because they're generally ethical people, but they're kind of rewarded to get the deal done. And that's that. If you're dealing with a trustee, their guidelines, professional ethics and the rules of professional practice that they have to abide by. They say that we are not allowed to sign off on a proposal unless we believe it's in everyone's best interest and the person will be able to repay it. Um, a licensed insolvency trustee can also help you file a bankruptcy if it's a situation where, you know, even 20 to 40 percent repayment of the debt just is not possible. It'll be too much hardship uh, or for whatever other reason. A personal bankruptcy is enshrined in Canadian law for the honest but unfortunate debtor to help them get a fresh start and turn things around. And generally, it's less severe than what you've thought. It's generally private and it's nothing to be afraid of. A licensed insolvency trustee is going to help you explore all of those options and figure out what's the best for your specific situation. 
And uh, just in the last minute we've got in this segment, Blair, uh, I want to just include the, the counseling sessions that are really are such an integral part of the service that you give somebody in assisting them in this debt management. Yeah, you, you said it right, Elaine. It's such an important part of the process is you've got to sit down. You'll meet with the trustee a number of times before you file the proceeding, and we'll give you some counseling at that point. But there'll be two uh, federally mandated with a great curriculum counseling sessions under either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal. They're going to tell you how to rebuild your credit, how to move forward with great financial habits, and try to make it a one-time thing in your life. So we really want it to be a transformative experience with a licensed insolvency trustee. Yeah, and it's just such good information that you can carry forward once you once you get out of this and everything gets looked after. Then you've got this. You've got another skill set. Sands-Trustee.com. Give them a phone call one eight hundred six six one thirty thirty and get that first free consultation as well as to find an office near you. Welcome to Dollars and Cents. I'm Elaine Scollin, along with Blair Manton from Sands & Associates. They're experts in helping you get out of debt. We're going to talk about CERB payments, and I'm so glad we're doing this segment, Blair, because it's a word that we've all become accustomed to, either reading about or hearing about, uh, and that's what this segment's all about. So the CERB payments. Um, let's start, Can you define it for us in, in, in your wonderfully clear way? I'll do my best, certainly. So CERB, or C-E-R-B, it's the Canada Emergency Response Benefit. And if we all think back to March, and in some ways March can feel like a lifetime ago or sometimes, you know, just, just yesterday, it feels like this, this year has just been funny the way that it's went. Um, this was what, when the government had to respond very quickly to the pandemic, realizing so many Canadians were losing their income completely, um, having hours reduced, being laid off as a result of lockdowns. So the government created this Canada Emergency Response Benefit, uh, which would provide $2,000 uh, with no taxes deducted, that's another thing we'll talk about later, um, to anybody who declared they were eligible for it. So it was a payment of $2,000 a month. It ran from early March until the end of September, uh, and then it transitioned into the Canada Recovery Benefit, which is a whole lot more similar to EI. It typically has taxes deducted. Uh, but the Canada Emergency Response Benefit, it ran from, again, March to September, about $2,000 per month. Um, and that's what we're talking about today is that a number of people, I've heard upwards of 500,000 people across Canada. So it was in the range of eight or nine million people applied for this benefit and received it. And now we we've, we've understand that up, upwards of half a million people in Canada have started to receive documents from CRA that say, hey, you might not have been eligible for that. Um, and obviously that's raising a lot of anxiety and we're getting a ton of calls about it and starting to see clients through the door really concerned about this. And these letters concerning the repayment, uh, that's after they've been given this money since March, mm-hmm. in some cases. Yeah. So the government made a conscious decision that they weren't going to check eligibility because speed was the important thing. You know, if someone's income was to zero and their rent was due and they had to buy groceries for their family, they said, you know, it's more important that we get this money out quickly. And we know we're going to give it to some people that maybe don't qualify for it, but we're going to deal with it down the road. Well, down the road is now. They're starting to deal with it. So there's two things that I'm seeing uh, with these CERB repayment letters being sent to individual individuals. You know, one is relatively straightforward, um, is that you could have applied for CERB through either Service Canada and or the Canada Revenue Agency. Now, most people would pick one, apply through either Service Canada or CRA, but some people chose to apply through both and actually receive double CERB benefits. So 
Uh, they didn't know they were getting $4,000 a month except for, instead of 2000 and there might be some you know, reasons why they felt they needed or were entitled to those funds, but right off the top, that's when the CRA is going to say, you know, you have to repay um, anything that you double collected. Uh, you know, the other one that we're seeing, and this is, I think, a little bit more difficult for folks to stomach, um, is that they didn't actually qualify because of the income eligibility requirements. So to be eligible to collect the CERB benefit, you had to either have earned $5,000 in 2019 or $5,000 in the 12 months before applying. So what CRA is sending in these letters is saying, based on the records we have at this time, we cannot confirm that you meet this requirement. So does that mean that people made less or they made more or do you or do you have a sense of that? Well, if they made more, it's okay. So it's generally that they either made less. And sometimes it's, it's simple to, to deal with this. If you just haven't filed your 2019 tax return, I'll get your 2019 okay. tax return in there. Um, and then you'll, they'll see, okay, yeah, you were eligible. You earned more than $5,000. Uh, okay. What I'm seeing a lot is people thought they earned more than $5,000, but they didn't realize certain sources of income aren't counted in that $5,000. So things okay. like pension income, disability benefits, um, student loans and bursaries, family support payments, social assistance, EI earnings, uh, even Canada Child Benefit, you know, all of those things, they don't qualify. You know, they're, they're generally part of your income if you file your taxes in most cases, but they don't qualify for calculating that $5,000. Um, the one that I'm hearing more and more about is for the self-employed individual who misunderstood the definition between gross income and net income. And that's a really important distinction. So let's, let's just spend a second there. Um, gross income, if you're self-employed, is essentially every dollar that you take in. It's your revenue. And if that's $5,000, okay, but you had some business expenses against that. So it's after you deduct your business expenses. Maybe if you were a retailer, you had some cost of your inventory, you had some electricity, some staff costs your net income is going to be something less than your re your revenue because it costs you some money to earn that revenue. And what CRE is saying is that your net income is what they care about. So I'm hearing from self-employed individuals that thought, well, you know, I grossed $8,000 last year, I must be fine. But their net income was actually under the $5,000 mark. And then CRE is saying, well, you may not have qualified for CERB because your net income was below that amount. I see. Okay. So how is Canada Revenue Agency going to collect well, CRA, as we often talk about on the show, they've got really strong collection powers, um, you know, more so than any other creditor. But in the short term, they said they want to take a softer approach and they call that their educational approach for now. So they're sending these letters out, you know, to educate people. Well, maybe your tax return wasn't filed. Why didn't you get on that? And for a self-employed person, if it is the case that your income was too low uh, for 2019, you know, one of your options would be to work with your account and just see perhaps did you not or sorry, did you over deduct some expenses? Are there some expenses that maybe shouldn't have been deducted? So you could go back and actually amend your tax return. You can't do anything that's incorrect or dishonest, of course. Uh, but working with your accountant, you might be able to change some of your reporting to actually make your income, um, you know, commensurate with that $5,000 level. Um, you know, in the future, CRA, I'm sure, is not going to keep this soft approach forever. So some of the basic things that they'll do is they can keep any future tax refunds. So anything that you would be accumulating over the next few years, they might just offset that against any CERB overpayment. Um, they could also keep things like Canada Child Benefit, which that can be just devastating, the amount of money um, that a family might be deprived of if CRA chose to offset that. But to date, they haven't said they're going to do that. These are just you know things that are in their toolbox. Okay. So what about my toolbox? What, what if I can't repay that money in full? Because 
that's a lot of money, and there was a great need every month. People mm-hmm. were struggling. I mean, lots of people were struggling. Yeah, absolutely, Elaine. I think that's what people are finding, you know, so tough is, okay, maybe I didn't meet the requirements, but what would you have had me do? (laughs) You know, I had to feed my family, had to pay my rent. This was, you know, the whole idea of all the politicians saying, we've got Canadians back here. Um, So, you know, first thing is, again, of course, make sure taxes are up to date and they're accurate. Um, It's, you know, you try to reach out to CRA and start to have conversations with them. So, Typically, um, CRA, they offer you six months of a payment plan. I expect that to be extended. I expect it to be quite reasonable on these CERB overpayments. Um, but if it is the case where you were legitimately overpaid for CERB, they've got no ability to waive those, those costs. Um, so, you know, essentially, you're going to have to pay it back at some point. Um, some of your options are, if you can't pay it back in full, you could choose to work with a trustee. You could sit down with a licensed insolvency trustee, and especially if you have other debt that's also weighing you down, these overpayments should be able to be part of either a bankruptcy or a consumer proposal proceeding. So it's not the case it can follow you for the rest of your life. It shouldn't do so, but it could be a significant number. You know, if it was, you know, call it six or seven months um, of served money, you know, six times $2,000, $12,000, and if the government starts adding some penalties and interest, which, again, I expect them to be reasonable in the short term, but it can be a significant number. So I was hearing, you know, even on just on the radio this morning of individuals who were saying, you know, what am I going to do? I've got this debt right now. These these letters say they want a response prior to December 31st. But again, it's not that they want everything paid back by then. They just want you to start to reach out to make some contact. Okay. And you said the word should be included, Those that CERB repayment program should be included under the consumer proposal. Do you know, in mm-hmm. fact, that it, that it will be or it can be, or, or is that yeah, still I, a little bit of an unknown? Well, I'm happy that you picked up on that, Elaine, because it's still a somewhat of an unknown, but my professional opinion and every trustee that I speak with is that this will be able to be included in either a bankruptcy or a proposal, because the only things that aren't included are debts owing to fraud, and it's a high bar to prove that there's fraud, and for the government to say that people that, you know, perhaps didn't understand their complete income in the midst of a pandemic are committing fraud, I don't see them doing that. So I think it will be included, but it's just not a certainty yet. Okay, great. Got it. Well, um, are, have you got any of this information or will you get some of this information on your website that it's so such a good site? Yeah, absolutely. We'll get a blog post up there in, in the coming days about serve options and repayments. Yeah, for sure. Great. And so the website address, because I, I think it's just so good on so many topics, is sans-trustee.com. You can give them a call as well if you want to talk to a trustee and figure some things out, including this repayment program and how it might affect you. If The number is one 800 661 3030 for that consultation, as well as to find an office near you. You're listening to Dollars and Cents with Blair Manton from Sands and Associates, helping you get out of debt. You've been listening to Dollars and Cents. See you next time. The proceeding was a paid commercial program. Unless otherwise identified, the guests on the program are employees of or otherwise represent the advertiser. The opinions expressed therein are those of the advertiser and do not necessarily reflect the views and policies of CKNW. Hi, it's Shauna, and I might be a bad parent because my kids think french fries are vegetables. Hey, it's Ryan, and I might be a bad parent because I went out for wings when my wife was in the hospital after giving birth. Johnny here. I might be a bad parent because in my house, the tooth fairy gives pocket change. But we're not alone. Len emailed us and said his six-year-old daughter's Tarzan moment going from love seat to lazy boy by curtains made him more proud than any dance (laughs) recital. And Andy left his two-year-old at the rink. All right, guys, I'm sure we're not alone, like Andy's kid. 
<laughs> For stories and confessions like this, make sure you check out our podcast. It's called Bad Parents and it's available wherever you get your podcasts. I left a glove at the rink.